0: Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com forward slash adapt. As many as 22,000 Canadians could die from COVID-19. That's according to federal modelling that was released on Thursday. But how much can these models really tell us? And what are the risks of making them public? I'm Anik Baudin from the Montreal Gazette, and this is 10.3. Today, National Post health reporter Sharon Kirky explains all you need to know about COVID-19 modelling, its strengths and its limitations. You can subscribe to 10.3 on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening now. Please leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends about us. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Monique. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, as well as I guess we can all be doing. I know it's been a long four weeks, hasn't it? It has been. Today, let's talk about modeling. There's been a lot of news about it this week across the country. Can we just start by explaining what modeling is? So, models are used to help get a sense of
1: what could happen. It's about looking at scenarios, um, making some kind of projections or forecasts about what could be. The thing with models, though, is that the farther out the model goes, the more uncertainty in the predictions. So you can predict with some certainty what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, or maybe even next week, but six months, 12 months, two years from now you know, not so much. It gets a much more uncertain picture.
0: And what can modeling do?
1: Researchers use modeling to try to forecast how a disease is going to progress. So, you know, how it's going to unfold, and then try to understand what effect any of the interventions are having on the spread of the disease. So what effect are school closures having? What about you know, banning mass gatherings or pulling tables out of restaurants or closing bars or having everyone who can work from home work from home. So it's about trying to really also staying one step ahead of the virus, you know, trying to prevent as many deaths as possible. And, you know, models aren't crystal balls, the as Canada's chief public health officer Theresa Tim said today when she released the federal models for COVID-19 they can tell us what could happen under various scenarios we always get the worst case scenario meaning worst case we do absolutely nothing and then the best case scenario where we clamp down really hard on this and really severely restrict you know human to human contact to slow the transmission but models can help drive public health actions you know get us ready get ready the system to get a better idea of how many new cases we might expect in
0: the coming weeks. What are the limitations of modeling? How reliable is a model?
1: Well, you know, as I mentioned, things get fuzzier the further out you go. I wrote a piece this week about modeling, and it's, if you're looking months out from where you are now, it's like driving through a blizzard, right? And models are really only as good as the information you have, and you're way more confident in the short term than you are in the long term. Because, you know, all of the things that you don't really know now that aren't really clear now are just going to magnify as time goes on. And modelers are using as much information as possible, which with a virus like this that's changing like hourly, that can be really difficult to try to get your head around. Some of the information they use in a lot of the models is the reproductive number. And we've talked about that before. You know, the number of people... Mm -hmm each infected person then goes on to infect. And right now, I think it's still hovering around two in Canada, and it needs to be less than one for this virus to peter out. Um, What they also look at in these models is the case fatality rate. So of the known infections, how many people have died? So, you know, what's the transmission rate? What's the recovery rate rate? what proportion is going to live or die they might also you know look at how many hospital beds are available in a specific region or how many ventilators how many icu beds we have and really you can choose to look at anything you like but and you can plug that information into the models to get these different scenarios but the more things you include the more complicated the model becomes and the less reliable the predictions over
0: the long term You mentioned today that the federal government released some of its modelling. Can you tell us what that shows?
1: Not great. The model says that Canada could see 11,000 to 22,000 deaths before the pandemic is over, so meaning over the next year or so. Mm -hmm. Under the worst case, with no measures in place, which of course is not the situation today because there are lots of restrictions in place, the model showed that deaths would easily top 300,000 across Canada. The good news is that there actually is a glimmer of good news. So that our total case counts in Canada have been increasing more slowly than some of the other really hard hit countries like Italy. And our line on the graphs isn't straight up. It's kind of bending. So the growth rate is already slowing down a bit. And we're seeing that in some of the provinces like BC. Plus, we're still at a really early stage. So That means that the lockdowns or the restrictions that were brought in over the last month or so really still have a better chance of flattening that curve. And what we know from the models, or what the models are telling us, is that the wave appears set to peak in late spring. And hopefully it will end in the summer. But there will very likely be smaller waves, you know, smaller outbreaks for months after that. And the prime minister said today that this will be sort of the new normal, right? These sort of smaller waves, smaller outbreaks until a vaccine is developed.
0: So we saw in Quebec that the public health authorities were reluctant to make their models public. So could you say why it's important to have this information made public? And and what are the risks? What are the risks of making the models public? If you're asking people
1: to totally upend their lives, like the way we're doing now, I think health authorities really owe it to us to be open and frank and as transparent as possible. You know, one expert I spoke with said, information engenders trust, and trust engenders resilience. And we are going to need a whole lot of resilience in the coming weeks and months. And without information, people have this sense of helplessness, right? They feel like they have mm-hmm. no control over the situation whatsoever. And, you know, I think the timing here was interesting today that the federal government released their modeling projections, you know, in a, one day before a long weekend. And I think it was to try to convince people to continue to, you know, bear down as they you know, call it, you know, not be tempted to leave our little bubbles or our shelters to continue, you know, practicing the social distancing. You know, for sure, the models can also really ramp up anxiety, right? I mean, they can make people mm-hmm. who, were, who were already quite anxious about what was happening even more anxious, especially people who are already struggling with mental health issues like depression or anxiety. But, you know, mm-hmm. again, that anxiety can motivate people, too. It can you know, motivate them to really pay attention to the messaging, to be careful, to sort of you know, redouble their efforts so that the worst of it can be over sooner and that we can you know, get back to some sense of normalcy.
0: Some of the models that we saw um, are based on data that's coming from other countries, other countries that are further ahead than we are in their outbreaks of the coronavirus. How much can we trust their data?
1: well a lot of the models are based on what's happened in italy because they are further out ahead of us by a couple of weeks i think people feel we can trust the the information coming from italy Uh, The models are also based on what's happened in China. Now, that's a little more controversial. There's been some concern over China right from the outset. You know, the province of Hubei initially played down the outbreak in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. Wuhan was the epicenter of of the virus. It emerged from a wet market in Wuhan. And officials, Chinese authorities in that province sort of muzzled one of the doctors who was the first to warn about seeing this very mysterious Mm -hmm. pneumonia that was appearing in Wuhan, and that was in late December. He was threatened, and he was, you know, muzzled. And, you know, tragically, he ended up dying of COVID-19. And there are concerns that China really underplayed the infections. You know, we're hearing that there have been no new deaths and and everything, they're starting to lift the restrictions in Wuhan. Um, But there's concern that they didn't report how many people were actually infected. So all of this has to be taken into consideration when we are using experiences in China um, to try to project or forecast what might happen here.
0: So part of the reason for releasing these scenarios or these models was to help people to continue with social distancing. How long do governments think that we're going to have to continue that for?
1: Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as I mentioned, uh, said today that there is, you know, we're going to have to look at continuing some restrictions until a vaccine is available. But a vaccine is at least 12, probably 18 months away, barring some miracle. Um, I mean, everybody's working frantically on vaccines and they've started to bring them into trials on humans. There's just this mass, unprecedented effort to get a vaccine. And I don't know how they expect people to stay vigilant against a virus that long, because Mm -hmm. what we'll be up against is compliance fatigue. You know, people will just be Mm -hmm. more willing to break the rules the further this out this goes. I guess the big question is whether The physical distancing measures that we have, you know, these measures that have really devastated the economy, whether we can start to lift them sort of strategically, you know, as the wave starts Mm -hmm. to recede. So can we go in if we see, for example, in Montreal that things are starting to slow down? Uh, perhaps we can start to lift the restrictions and measures there, and then look and see what happens. And as soon as there is any evidence of oh transmission starting again, we're starting to see outbreaks. Then we go in like and, and we're like you know brush fires. We go in and try to stamp them out as quickly as possible. We go in and start doing aggressive testing, find the people who are infected, you know, trace their contacts, isolate them, do everything to sort of break that. uh, chain of transmission again so it might be we can lift them we can see what happens if there's any evidence things are going crazy again we we then um, you know bring the restrictions back in again that might be one way to sort of approach it so that we don't have to have this sort of one size fits all where the entire country is still um, dealing with having you know working and living under these restrictions that are really devastating not just to the economy but to really personal lives
0: They're definitely having a very serious financial uh, impact for so many people. How will we know that this was all worth it?
1: You know, I guess we'll know if it was worth it if we don't have 300,000 Canadians die over the next year or so. Um, Remember, that was the worst case scenario in the federal models that were released today. And we have to remember, you know, this virus is way more contagious than flu. It seems to be anyway, and so far has a much higher death rate, particularly for older people, but not just older people. You know, this gen- this doctor that I spoke with in an ICU in Ottawa today, he said, look, our ICU is full. It was an ICU dedicated only to COVID-19 patients. And he said, we have people here, they're older, they're, they're past middle age, but they're not super old. You know, we're seeing people in their 50s, their 60s or 70s some of them had underlying conditions but most of them didn't you know they had very trivial trivial conditions and he said these aren't the type of people we normally see in intensive care so you know people are asking how many lives saved is worth you know how many billions of dollars and lost jobs and and you know uh, you know an upended economy but so people are asking how many lives saved is worth you know how many billions of dollars of lost jobs. Um, But I don't think it's about saving a single life. It's about preventing a catastrophic loss of life. And so far, there are signs
0: that it's working. Sharon, thank you very much for this. You're welcome, Monique. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Sharon Kirky. More from Sharon at nationalpost.com. I'm Monique Bonet.